All right, let's go ahead and pray, and we'll ask the Lord to cast the demons out of our sound system, all right? Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you for this wonderful day. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, Him crucified, buried, risen again, coming for us. Lord, as we dive into this passage of Scripture, this whole chapter, Genesis chapter 27, and we look at this family, I pray, Lord, that you would just guide us in, um, in this hour, and may we hear from you, and may you work mightily in our midst, we pray in Jesus' precious name, amen. Today I want to talk to you about, I've titled this message, A Dysfunctional Family. Now, there's many of you here today that probably love some of the old family television shows. I'm talking about some of the family television shows like Leave it to Beaver or the Waltons, or maybe some of you might have even enjoyed the Brady Bunch. But people would watch these shows and wonder and think to themselves, wow, what a wonderful family that is. Only seeing, though, the distance uh, of the family made everything seem like it was all right. But really, there was two realities that would sink in, and for many of these things later on. First of all, many of the actors that were part of these family shows, we found out, have messed up their lives. And then secondly, most of us, when we got married, realized that uh, marriage and family wasn't always as rosy as television put it out to be. And there were problems. And I feel like this is almost the same way of viewing the home of Isaac and Rebekah. You know, when you read through the book of Genesis, Isaac is that beloved son, that promised son of Abraham. And boy, you can't think of anything better. Isaac is sent away when he's gotten older, and he's sent off to find a wife and happenstance, he and his dear servant come to the home of where Rebecca is and Rebecca decides to marry falls in love with Isaac and decides to follow him and whatever God has for him and we think to ourselves wow what a tremendous family but we come to chapter 25 and I'd like you to do me a favor and so go back to Genesis chapter 25 and I want you to see the problems beginning to unfold in this family if you look at chapter 25, notice verse number 22. It had already mentioned here, Isaac had been 40 years old. He had taken Rebekah to be his wife. He entreated the Lord that she would become pregnant. She becomes pregnant. And notice verse 22, the children struggled together within her. And she said, if it be so, why am I thus? And she went to inquire the Lord. So here's the Lord's explanation as to the struggle that's in her belly. The Lord said unto her, Two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels, and the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. So here we find that this oldest child, the one who's born first of the twins, will actually, according to God's prophecy, will serve the younger. Well, there's a massive struggle that's going on inside Rebecca's womb here. And we see something else interesting that happens. Look at verse number 26. Esau comes out. He's hairy. After he comes out, Jacob then comes, his brother it says, and his hand took hold on Esau's heel. Now I guarantee the midwife that probably was there helping with the delivery, and maybe Rebecca, if she saw this, thought to herself, 
how cute this was. And maybe if you'd be there, you'd say, wow, look at how cute that was. That's a picture moment. The younger brother holding onto the heel. But I'm going to tell you something. If you understood the ramifications, here is Jacob, this heel catcher, this boy who would become a deceiver and a trickster. That's really all of what that meant. But I want you to see further the problems that come in now. Look at verse number 27 and 28. The Bible says, And the boys grew, and Esau was a cunning hunter, a man of the field, and Jacob was a plain man dwelling in the tents. All right? The boys are different. No problem. But here's where the problem comes in. Verse number 28. Can you catch this? Isaac loved Esau because if he did eat of his venison... But Rebekah loved Jacob. Can you name the problem in one word? Favoritism. Favoritism. Wow, what a terrible pitfall in parenting. And I think it comes about many times you see favoritism in many families today because of the upbringing of one of the parents. Maybe there's been favoritism that was shown as they were growing up. Or possibly there's trouble in the marriage and therefore there is one parent now finding consolation in one child and another parent finding consolation in another child. Well, it all started with Abraham. You look at the beginning of chapter number 25 and the Bible talks about how Abraham loved Isaac, it's his favorite son, but to Ishmael and to the other sons, He only gave them gifts, but the Bible says he sent them away from Isaac. Wow. Then you come over to chapter number 27, the text that we're in, and I want you to see something very interesting here. Notice in verse number 5, Rebekah heard when Isaac spake to Esau, his son. I think the writer of the scriptures here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, very particularly writes here that this son, Esau, that's Esau, that's Isaac's son. But look at verse number 6. Rebekah spake unto Jacob, notice the next two words, her son. Wow, the division is there. Can I say to you that this divided affection that was in this home, and it if it's in your home, will only produce an unhealthy atmosphere of competition. It will only produce an atmosphere of mistrust, disrespect, and sadly, there will be resentment that will come for days on end. You know the Bible is very clear about favoritism. Do you realize the Lord does not play favorites? And do you realize that you and I as parents or whoever we are ought not to play favorites? James chapter 2 verse 9, but if you have respect to persons, favoritism, the Bible says, ye commit sin. Now while this is not a sermon on favoritism, it is a sermon about sin and the outcome of favoritism and what it did to this family. Now, most of us, if you've known the Bible, know the rest of the story. Jacob comes into his father with the meal that his mother had prepared, just like his father liked it, and he had animal skins on him so he would feel just like Esau. 
Well, Isaac questions him on multiple occasions, and afterwards, he then pronounces that blessing upon Jacob, who Isaac thinks is Esau. Well, not long after, Esau comes in excitedly, ready for that blessing from his father, realizing that the blessing had already been given. And to both of their surprise, they realize Jacob the trickster, Jacob the heel catcher, Jacob the deceiver has done this wicked deed. Now, blessings given to Esau, but it's not the one that he wanted. And really, here's the rest of the story. As you read the rest of this chapter, Esau so hated Jacob, the Bible says he wanted to kill him. Rebekah, knowing Esau's promise, purpose, he sends, she sends Jacob away with Esau and is hoping that somehow the whole situation will pacify. But what are the results? Well, you read later on through the remaining chapters, Jacob finds such hardship and has dealt some, some of his own deceitful medicine as he meets up with his future father-in-law. He's under great stress when he realizes meeting up with Esau, he doesn't know how Esau is going to react to him. But sadder yet, one of the greatest things that happens is, I don't believe that Jacob ever meets up with his mother again, sadly. So this sermon today is about a dysfunctional family. It's about the high price of each family member doing what they could to seek their own way. So let's explore, if we can, in this chapter, the schemes, the deception, the sinful actions of each member of this dysfunctional family. And then at the very end, let's make some application. Let's begin, first of all, with the sin of Isaac. The sin of Isaac I like to call self-centered enjoyment or the sin of a complacent father. Now we find Isaac is at what he thinks is the end of his life. You read a couple of chapters earlier, his brother Ishmael, who was just a little bit older than him, about 13 years older, his brother Ishmael had died at the age of 137. And it is believed that when we read Genesis 27, that Isaac is right at that age and he thinks to himself, I'm at the age my brother died. The Lord's going to take me home. He's feeling aged. His eyesight is already uh, very, very dim, very poor, can't see a whole lot. So he's thinking, it's time here to die. It's time for me to give the blessings to my children. Now, what was an Old Testament blessing? Every Old Testament father in the Jewish realm would give words here before he passed on. He would give words to his children, which would include details about their inheritance. And he would also give prophetic words about their future. These blessings meant everything to the children. And not having a blessing from your father was identical to receiving a curse. But I want you to notice something as the passage was read to us earlier. That when Isaac gets ready to give the blessing, he does not call both Esau and Jacob together. He only calls Esau. Now this is not a problem of Isaac forgetting God's prophecy. Or Isaac getting old and senile. 
This was, I believe, a deliberate choice on the part of Isaac himself to call in Esau and ignore God's prophetic will. And what we find is an old man who's interested in his own ways and in satisfying himself and his own fleshly appetites. I love what he asked Esau. Hey Esau, you know that meal that you make for me on occasion? You know how I like the meat? You know the veggies that you put with it, the potatoes, how you cook those? Wanting to fulfill his own fleshly appetites. How amazing we find this. It's quite sad today that there are many dads who have abdicated the conquering of their own flesh and in turn have not helped their own children with conquering their flesh. There's too many dads today that are consumed with their pleasures. They're consumed with their hobbies. Maybe some of the things are sinful. Maybe some of the things are okay in this life. But they're so consumed and so wrapped up in themselves that they forget to really help their sons and their daughters. These dads today, self-centered dads, are of such a low caliber, spiritually speaking, that they don't give to their children the tools that they need to live godly lives. It's quite interesting, later on in the chapter, when Jacob is ready to go on, how Isaac and Rebekah warn him, go find a wife, not here of the Canaanites, but go find a wife in the land where our family is. It's not recorded that Isaac ever said that before to Esau and Jacob. But he did give it to Jacob. And Esau is a child who went ahead and married of the Canaanites. And the Bible says in the end of Genesis 26 that that was a grief to his mother and father. So here's Isaac, the self-centered man who is complacent in regards to his role as a father. But now let's take the sin of Rebekah. The sin of Rebekah, I like to say, is situational ethics. The sin of a controlling mother. Now, without a show of hands, how many have ever known a controlling mother? Whether it be in the home with a husband, whether it be in the home with children. And it's interesting to note that Rebekah, this wife, wanted God's choice, but she wanted it for all the wrong reasons. While Esau's favor, or while Isaac's favorite was Esau, Rebekah, her choice was Jacob. It was almost as if Jacob was Rebekah's pawn in the power of struggle that was between this husband and wife. And while Rebekah could probably say on the outside that she wanted to do God's will, because Jacob was God's choice, she was going about it in the wrong way. Notice, if you will, some of the behavior here of Rebecca. It almost seems like Rebecca's always keeping close tabs to the old man, Isaac, while he's in his rocking chair. Notice, if you will, here in verse number 6, Rebecca spake unto Jacob, her son, Behold, I heard thy father. Notice the verse number, verse 5, right before it, Rebecca heard that word heard is a very interesting word. She's 
peering in. She's listening in to every conversation of Isaac. She's listening in when Esau comes around trying to find out what's the conversation today. What trick might he play today? What thing might he do to hide from us today? And when she hears this conniving between Isaac and Esau, now she comes to Jacob with a plan. It's very interesting. Rebecca's controlling aspect is seen in her listening on, but her control is seen with her son Jacob as well. Look at verse number 8. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Look at verse 13. And his mother said unto him, Upon me be thy curse, my son. Only obey my voice. Look at towards the end of the chapter, verse number 43. The Bible says, Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Now you say, Oh, come on, preacher. I mean, this is a kid, right? No, it's estimated that Jacob was probably 77 years old. And his mother's coming to him saying, Obey my voice. This man, Jacob, should have stood up to his mother with a moral fiber in his being and should have said, Mom, this is wrong. We ought not to do this. But all in all, Rebecca acted in such a way that the end justifies the means. Is that not what situation ethics is all about? Oh, Rebecca may have justified in her mind that if she didn't act now, Maybe the whole plan of God would have been thwarted and thrown aside. And so with it came along all the deception. I love how Jacob didn't know how the plan was going to go along. Rebecca comes to Jacob, tells him, Hey, this is what your father and Esau, your brother, are conniving together to do. And now let me give you a plan. Jacob says, Well, how do I do that? You know, as you read, and I've read this multiple times this week, it's almost as if Rebecca had been thinking over and over for months, maybe years, of how she'd do this. Where in the world did all of a sudden she think to herself, let's grab some of those skins out of Esau's house and put them on your body. Let's go ahead and do this. Let's go ahead and perform this. She's been thinking of these things as a controlling mother all of this time. But sadly, all of this planning, all of this conniving, this sinful action, every bit of it backfired on Rebecca. What she feared would happen actually did happen according to verse number 45. Look at verse number 45 where it says here that she's going to send him away a few days so that way she's not deprived of both boys in one day. But guess what? She ended up being deprived of both boys. Jacob goes off to Haran. Esau moved himself to Edom. And what Rebekah thought would be just a few days when everything would calm down turned out to be 20 long years where her boys are gone from her. So what do we have here in this dysfunctional family? Isaac, self-centered enjoyment, a complacent father. Rebekah, situational ethics, a controlling mother. But now notice Jacob. The sin of Jacob, scheming efforts, the sin of a conniving brother. Now, sometimes we read about Jacob and we almost feel a little bad for him. It's as if he doesn't know what's going on and he's simply obeying his mother. But as I said earlier, he's in his 70s. 
He should have some understanding of what's happening. And really, it's quite clear in reading this chapter that Jacob, by no means, is he a spiritual man. doesn't seem like he fears God or his moral law. He only fears that if this plan doesn't work, it's going to backfire on me. And I'm going to find myself in a hot seat with Dad. He might get cursed instead of blessed. Jacob wanted the wealth. He wanted the advantage that went along with the blessing. And like Rebekah, Jacob is seeking his own way and not seeking God's way. I want you to watch how this conniving plan falls into action. Notice verses 18 and 19 here, how the Bible tells us about Jacob lying about who he is. Look at this. He came into his father, verse 18, said, My father... He said, Here am I. Who art thou, my son? Jacob said unto his father, I am Esau, thy firstborn. First lie. Look at verse 20. Isaac begins to test him a little further. He says, Well, how is it that thou hast found it so quickly, my son? And now he brings God in on this conniving scheme. He says, Because the Lord thy God brought it to me. Now, verse 21 to 23, he begins to play the role. Jacob went near unto Isaac, his father, and he felt him and said, Well, the voice is Jacob's, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He discerned him not because his hands were hairy, so he blessed him. And now he asks him in verse number 24, notice, here he is. He lies again about his identity. He says, Art thou my very son? And what does Jacob answer? I am. But now he caps it all off with a kiss. Look at verse 26. His father Isaac said unto him, Come near now and kiss me, my son. And he came near and kissed him. Now, if you're not careful here today, you might sit there and be very critical of Jacob and doing what he's doing. But I'm going to tell you something. You and I are capable of doing the same things. Have you ever bent the truth? When you were under pressure? Have you ever went ahead and lied about something because you needed that something? The problem is, once you tell that first lie, it begins, it's easier to continue to go ahead and lie to bail yourself out. The question's going to be asked Did Jacob really get what he was after? Well, on the surface, We could say, yes, he got the blessing. But I'm going to just tell you something. It didn't quite come up packaged like he thought it would be. He had to flee from his brother because his brother wanted to kill him. The blessing stipulated that he would be the master of his brother. But we see him coming back later. And what does he do? He bows down to his brother, bringing him gifts as if he's a servant. He thought the blessing would put him in a position of great honor and influence. But I'll tell you what, he ended up serving for about 20 years under his future father-in-law like a servant. Later on, Jacob has his children of his own, 12 sons of Jacob. And that deception that Jacob showed on that day that we read here in this chapter comes back on him when his boys deceive him about what happened to his favorite son, Joseph. Wow, what an amazing turn of events. So we have Isaac, 
the self-centered enjoyment, he's a complacent father. Rebecca, the situational ethics, a controlling mother. Jacob, this conniving brother. But now I want you to notice the sin of Esau, a selfish example, the sin of a corrupt brother. Now again, as we get into these stories, we almost want to feel bad for some of these characters. But I want to tell you something Esau got what was his due. Please note a couple of things about this man. Let's remind ourselves about the birthright issue. You know, you look at verse number 36, how amazing it is when Esau finds out that Jacob had already come in and brought a meal. He says to his father, my brother has taken away my birthright. No, no, your brother didn't take it away. Go back to chapter 25 and look at verses 29 to 34. Esau, when he was hungry, sold his birthright to his brother Jacob. So he lies there. But in reality, there's something else that had happened. This man is so sinful, so corrupt, that he doesn't follow the pattern of his grandfather Abraham or of his father Isaac. But look at the end of chapter number 26 where the Bible says in verse 34, Esau was 40 years old when he took to wife Judith, the daughter of Beeri the Hittite, and Bashamath, the daughter of Elon the Hittite. Now if that's all we had, we'd say to ourselves, all right, he married Judith, he married Bashamath, But notice verse 35, these were a grief of mind unto Isaac and to Rebekah. This man Esau is a wicked man, was a grief to his parents. And in fact, if you look at the commentator Hebrews in writing about this and describing Esau, it describes him as a fornicator. Now reading on this chapter You might say to yourself, oh, come on, let's have a little sympathy for Esau. This man now comes through, and he's got a little remorse. Well, how many have raised children, and they've done something wrong, and you've recognized genuine tears of remorse and tears of, oh, no, I got caught? How many of you parents can say amen that you've seen the difference? Well, here's Esau. I don't believe crying tears of I need to repent. I need to get right with God. These are tears of, I didn't get what I thought I deserved. I am not getting what we had discussed, what we have planned on having for my life. His sorrow, Esau's tears, whatever they were, were a sorrow for himself. What a sad life. Sad life. You read in verse number 41, hatred boils up in this man. Now you say, oh, hatred, this was passing just with Esau a little bit. I want to tell you something. This hatred stayed with Esau his whole life. Yes, he may have had a little time of a gesture with his brother Jacob. But I want to tell you something. This hatred that boiled in Esau's breast was passed down to his descendants. You say, preacher, how do you know that? I want you to look at chapter 36 for just a moment of Genesis. Look at Genesis chapter number 36. Moses 
writing the book of Genesis takes careful effort to give us a record in chapter 36 of the Edomites. And I want you to notice how God repeats himself to let us know the origin of the Edomites. Look at verse number 1. These are the generations of Esau, who is Edom. Look at verse 8. Thus dwelt Esau in Mount Seir. Esau is Edom. Look at verse 19. These are the sons of Esau, who is Edom. Look at verse number 43. It says right at the end, He is Esau, the father of the Edomites. Do you know what Moses is carefully recording here? That that hated man, that man Esau, who hated his brother, that hatred was passed on to his descendants known as the Edomites. And in fact, a thousand years later, in Psalm 83, Asaph, that great music minister for David, when he writes about the enemies of Israel, guess who's listed at the top? The Edomites. This man Esau, who was conniving and was desiring things for himself, a sinful man, when he didn't get his way, had such hatred that it passed down to his descendants. Four family members of a dysfunctional family who all had things that they dealt with of a sinful nature. But today I want to close with these concluding thoughts to bring some application here today. You say, preacher, I've been brought up in a dysfunctional family. I feel like I got a little bit of a dysfunctional family. We've, we've got some, and I'm going to just tell you, you might call, you might say, well, we got favoritism, we got this, and you might use all the terminology of today, but I want to tell you something. If you've got some sin in your life and you've got some sin in your family, I want to encourage you to deal with it today. I want to encourage you that that family pattern can be broken, that you can move forward for the Lord Jesus Christ. What do you need to realize today? Well, number one, concluding thought, sin always has dire consequences. There's a principle that every person must grab hold on today, and that is you will reap what you sow. I didn't put the verse on the screen, but listen to this in Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 through 8. Paul, the apostle, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to the flesh, shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit, shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. I want to remind you here today, that just like you can sow good deeds and good actions and reap good benefits from it, so in like kind you can sow evil deeds, sinful actions, and you will reap a life of corruption. Sin always has consequences. People think to themselves, I can do what I want. I can live any way that I want. It's okay. I want to tell you something. Sin has consequences. You know, it's amazing we live in a day today where people always talk about grace. And I'm the first to tell you today that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ abounds for every believer. Grace freely flows down from Calvary and is available and can cover every sin. But I'm going to tell you something. 
The grace of God is not to be trampled upon. It is not to be used so I can go off and do what I want. The same writer of Galatians who talked about the abundance of grace is the same writer who says that we are not to fall into the trap of sowing to the flesh. Because if we sow to the flesh, we will reap of the flesh. Number two, concluding thought. It's always best to work with God and not against Him. It's always best to work with God and not work against Him. You know, it's honestly a nonsense to fight against God. You can either fight against God or you can submit to His purposes. Look, if you will, at verse number 33. I want you to notice back to chapter 27, verse number 33. When Jacob or Esau comes in, verse 30 says, Isaac had made an end of blessing Jacob. Jacob is scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, and now Esau comes abounding in. What did Esau do? He made the savory meat like his father liked. He comes in. Imagine now the excitement in his voice. Let my father arise and eat of your son's venison that my soul, thy soul may bless me. Notice verse 32, Isaac's father said unto him, Who art thou? And he said, Well, of course, I'm your son Isaac, your firstborn. And notice verse 33, Isaac trembled very exceedingly, scared. Who in the world did I just bless? Who in the world did I think was my firstborn? And he knew that blessing Esau went against God's plan. He knew the covenant promise that was given to Abraham. But Isaac realized that his desire to change God's plan had been thwarted and he had been overruled by God. Can I testify to something here today? When I was a teenager fighting against God, I thought I could have my own way. I thought I could beat the system. I thought that living my way was going to be the best. But I came to a place close to 18 years old where I surrendered to the Lord because I saw that fighting against God was a losing battle because God desires to have each of His children follow Him. If only Isaac and Rebekah had worked with God instead of fighting against Him, a lot of the grief we read in the coming pages would have been avoided. Number three, number three application. It's never right to do wrong in order to get a chance to do right. When I was a student at Bob Jones University, the founder of the university, Bob Jones Sr., was an evangelist, had many, many different statements, and he made this statement on multiple occasions. It is never right to do wrong in order to get a chance to do right. But hold on for just a minute, preacher. You might ask to yourself, was it God's will to give the blessing to Jacob? Yes. But was it right for Jacob and Rebekah to gain the blessing through deception? No. I want to tell you something. Methods do matter. Wrong methods don't become right just because they work, even though things may turn out okay in the end. 
You know, we live in a world today that is very pragmatic. Many Christians have bought into the philosophy that if any method will work, then let's go ahead and use it. Churches use this message to bring in people. Church people, individuals use this method to live for God. That the end justifies the means. But I want to tell you something. It is never right to do wrong in order to get a chance to do right. Follow God's way and do it the right way. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for allowing us to come together. Thank you, Lord, for this message. The, these individuals of this family... Isaac, Rebecca, Jacob, Esau. Oh, how they needed to follow your way. And while heads are bowed and eyes are closed here today, I want to talk to you that are families, individuals here today. Are you following God? Is there sin in your life? Is there sin in your family? You say, preacher, I've been showing the sin of favoritism here. We've, we're, our, our family's a little splintered. We, we've got some issues that we're dealing with. Well, I want to encourage you here today that the patterns of sinful behavior, the patterns of sinful decisions and actions that have been in your life and in your family, those things can be broken, but you've got to yield yourself to God. And today, I want to encourage you to set things right with God. God's spoken to you here today and you say, Preacher, there's some sin in my life. There's some sin in my family. And I need to deal with it here today. And while heads are bowed and eyes are closed, no one's looking. You say, Preacher, would you just pray for me today in closing prayer? Please pray for me. There's some things that I must deal with here today in our family, in my life. God bless you. Amen. Anyone else here today? God bless you. God bless you. Anyone else here today? Once you put your hand, you can put it down. God's dealing with me about something. Preacher, God's dealing with me about scenario. The Holy Spirit's tugging me about this. It's not anything that you mentioned verbally, but I'm dealing with something that needs to be corrected.